Lasso. So this morning I'd like to share with you one of my very favorite parables in the whole of the Buddhist tradition. And then we'll return to the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy. The parable I read from a book that I translated is called uh, Naked Awareness, written by Kamachamaram, but she has a whole, par- a whole chapter just of parables, uh, which I really love. And this is my favorite one of them all, and it's, it will sound in some respects quite familiar, and some of you may actually have heard it before. It's worth hearing again. It's kind of the Buddhist version of the prodigal son. And so the story goes, it is a parable, uh, that uh, there was once a king, a very wise king, but who had a foolish son as his crown prince. And the king, knowing this prince would one day ascend to the throne, was quite concerned you know, that he'd have a fool as the next king. And so... That's actually another... I'm going to tell both of them. I just switched tracks. I said, I guess, okay, this, had, this one had to be told as well. There are two parables about foolish... You're going to get both of them. What can I say? I'm just, it was like one said, move over. It's my turn. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Because you'll see they're rather similar. This is not the prodigal son, but it's a little bit similar. That one's coming. This is, this is, what do they call it? In the old days when they had two movies, what do they call that? Double feature. Double feature for the price of one. So the king was very concerned about his foolish son, and he called his minister in, a very wise minister, and said, what can we do? And the minister said, well, ask, ask the son, what does he like? What does he shouldn't like? And the king said, well, he likes horses. <laughs> you know, like a modern, modern, modern teenage kid, well, he likes sports cars, <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> and so uh, the minister was also a great yogi, said, ah, he likes horses. Good, then leave it, leave it to me. Leave it to me. So the king said, cool. So the next day they're having you know, a royal banquet. The son is there. And the minister brings into the royal dining hall this amazing stallion. I mean, like the king of horses. Stellar. You know, the Maserati of horses. The Lamborghini, Monty. You know, the Italian cats have to be so good because they have such cool names. Lamborghini, Maserati, Ferrari. Even Alfa More, Alfa More. Alfa? Alfa? Morea? Alfa Romeo. Oh, yeah, how could I say that? How could I forget Alfa Romeo? In any case, back to the horse. <laughs> and the minister presents the horse to the prince and says, I'd like to make this an offering to you. Would, would you be happy to accept? And the prince said, yeah, absolutely. Can I take it for a ride? Absolutely. So the prince hops up onto the back of the horse, and the horse immediately just takes off, has a mind of its own, right? takes off outside of the palace and runs and runs and runs, and the, and, the hor- and the prince is on for the ride, but he's just got no control over this horse at all. And the horse runs all day and runs all night. And all day and all night. Runs and runs and runs. And to finally, they come to the end, the edge, the edge of the edge of the kingdom. They come to a seashore. 
No more place to run. And then the horse kicks him off and swims out to sea. <laughs> and so now here's this prince, deserted, in a place where there's like nobody around. Nobody around. He's lost, he's homeless. So he just wants, scavenges around, but then after some time he bumps into a young woman. And she said, oh, we'll take you in. My father, my father, I live right over here. We'll take you in. Said, oh, he's incredibly relieved. Lovely young woman. So he, he moves in with them and falls in love with the young woman. Gets the father's blessing. They marry. They have one child, two children. Because he really has not a clue how to get back to his kingdom. He's really just lost it. This is, this is far, far away. And so they grow up. The children grow up. That is, you know, to the level of children, beyond, beyond infancy. And one day he's out by the river with his wife and his two children, just enjoying a picnic. And one of his children goes splashing in the river, and then is swept down the river. And so the father, the prince, panics and jumps into the river to try to save his, his child. He swims and swims swims as fast as he can trying to save the child. But he never reaches the child. And the child is swept down the river and lost. But then while he's out in the river trying to save the one child and in vain, he looks back and he sees that wolves have come. They've attacked his wife and his other child, killed them both. And so he swims back to shore. And he's Utterly grief-stricken. Utterly grief-stricken. Lost everything. And then suddenly he snaps too, and he's in the, the dining hall. And he says... You won't believe it, but I've been away. I, I, I've been away for a long time. I, I had a wife and I had children. And they all died. And everybody around him at the banquet table saying, how do you mind? You've been here the whole time. Said, no, 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 really, really. When we say really, really, you didn't go anywhere. Do you want this horse or not? <laughs> no. And in that moment, he experienced profound renunciation and then set out on the path of wisdom. So that was the first episode. And now for the main feature. There was once a, young, once a king who had a very foolish son. <laughs> and the son went out because there was a, one of these wonderful illusionists. Just create fantastic, it was a performer, and could create these fantastic illusions. So it was performing. People from the village would come around, and the, and the and young foolish prince was very, very keen. Really wanted to see this, because he loved, you know, just like nowadays people love movies. He wanted to see it. So he went off with his little entourage, and it was a spectacular display. Oh, one illusion after another. So lifelike. 
so literally mesmerizing that the prince was simply entranced by this, got totally absorbed into these wonderful illusions one after another, just almost like, you know, like, a, like a zombie, just swept into it. And then after some time, the illusion is gone. The illusionist leaves. And the prince looks around and he, he can't remember who he is. He got so immersed in all this marvelous array of illusions that it actually t- took his mind away and he became amnesiac. And he couldn't remember for the life of him who he was. And he's looking around and he doesn't recognize anyone. We know from outside that he somehow slipped away from his entourage. And they're looking for him. They can't find him. In the meantime, when the whole thing is over, the entourage is now really upset. They can't find the, the prince. They can't find the prince. And so they're sending out search parties. But the prince has wandered off. The prince doesn't know who he is. And he's completely bewildered. He doesn't know how he got here. He doesn't know where he is, who he is, or anything. He's seeing his very fine clothes, and that's about it. But after a while, he just gets hungry. And he sees some beggars over yonder. And he says, well, they, they like me, are unskilled because he doesn't seem to have any skills at all. And so he joins the beggars and says, can I join you? And they say, yeah, give us your clothes. <laughs> you know, we'll let you join our group. He said, sure, sure. I can eat my, can't eat my clothes. So he gives them the, his fa- fancy clothes, and then they, they, then they let him join him. And then he learns the trade. He learns how to beg, what kind of houses to go to, how to present yourself, how to, you know, be a beggar. He learns, he enters the guild, gets his, you know, beggar's guild card. And so after a while, he really gets into the flow of it. He really learns how to become a professional beggar, and he goes from house to house to house. So now he's figured out who he is. He really is a beggar. He's good at it. He's recognized by his fellows as a good beggar. And so months go by. Who knows how long goes by. And so then after a while, he's really striking out on his own. He knows how to beg. He's a professional. And he comes to one very nice, Really, I'm at something of a mansion. I said, wow, you're going to have some good grub. I'm sure they would, you know, if they're decent people, they'd give me a piece of bread or something. So he comes to the front door, knocks on the door rather timidly, ready to perform. Saad, give me bakshish, And actually, the head of the household opens the door, not a maid or a butler. The head of the household opens the door for whatever reason. And he takes one look at the beggar. And he says, your royal highness, this is the minister. This is the chief minister of the king. He just happened to drop in. And the chief minister takes one look and he said, your royal highness, we've been looking, we've been frantic. We've been looking for you for months. Thank you for coming back. Welcome, welcome. And the beggar is hearing this and he, and he just says, oh, wait a minute. All I wanted is some food. I didn't need your sarcasm. If you don't want to give me any food, I understand. But, you know, the Royal Highness is a bit much. So, you know, would you like to give me a piece of bread or not? But please, you know, cut the crap. I don't need the sarcasm. And the minister says, no, 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 really, really. I, I know you. You're the, you're, you're the prince. You're the crown prince. And the guy said, look, that's it. Either stop or I'm, I'm you, know, you know, put up or shut up. Give me some food or else, you know, stop. But the, I don't need the sarcasm. I don't need irony. I don't need me to make fun of me. So then the minister, minister being wise, he recognizes he's not getting through. But he's certainly not going to let this guy get away because they don't have anybody to replace him. He's the, only, he's the only crown prince, the only prince there is. So he figures he has to be very skillful in means. He said, oh, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, mistaken identity. I didn't mean to upset you, didn't mean to be sarcastic and so forth. Uh, I recognize you. And by all means, linger for a little bit. I have a conversation with you first. Uh, tell me, uh, Mr. Beggar, um, I'm really quite interested in, in you. Uh, where were you born? You're, you're a beggar, so where were you born? And who are your parents? Tell me about your childhood. Certainly you'll remember these things since you're a beggar. So tell me, how did you originate? What were the factors of origination? <laughs> Where did you come from? Who are your parents? Who did you grow up with? What was your neighborhood? Tell me about your youth. And nobody had ever asked the beggar such questions before. And he never asked them of himself. And he knew these were reasonable questions, and they were questions for which he really should have the answer. So he probed backwards, probed back into the origins of his own identity as a, as a beggar. And he found not only that he couldn't remember, but then he recognized that there was nothing to remember of his childhood and youth as a beggar. And in not only not remembering, but in recognizing there was nothing to remember of his childhood and youth as a beggar, suddenly that inquiry into the very nature of his own identity and the origins of his identity as a beggar, that inquiry broke through his amnesia. And in, in an instant, then he recognized who he actually was. And he acknowledged this to the minister. And the minister then, with tremendous jubilation, with great joy, invited him in and said, let us take you immediately to the royal court. We would like to enthrone you right now. The king is ready to step down. And so they brought him to the royal palace. He was greeted with great rejoicing, great respect. He was enthroned, and in an instant, he became king. We've all been mesmerized by the notion that we are sentient beings, wandering hopelessly, surrounded by other beggars in samsara. And when we hear about our Buddha nature, we, we think of it as something we have or don't have, but it seems simply ridiculous, almost like offensive, to say, oh, you're a Dakini, you're a Buddha, you're, you're Buddha nature. It seems almost like piss off. <laughs> Who do you think you are? just making me angry. <laughs> Either give me a little bit of Dharma teaching or shut up. <laughs> but I don't need sarcasm. So this leads us to empathetic joy. I spoke yesterday of practicing any of the three modes of shamatha from the perspective of a quiet, luminous, pure awareness. As if you're sitting on your throne, awareness sitting, resting in its own place, holding its own ground, holding its own throne. And from that vantage point, attending to the kingdom of the body, the kingdom of the mind, observing, illuminating, clarifying, but not stepping off the throne, remaining in that clarity, in that stillness, but illuminating these different domains of experience. So we try. Resting the awareness in its own place. 
And what I'd like to suggest for the first part of this session is recognize that. Recognize that when your awareness is sitting on its own throne, resting in its own place, holding its own ground, and take satisfaction. This isn't realization of Rikpa yet, but this is the direct route, without detours, without embellishments, without contrivances. Direct route. Let your awareness just rest in its own place, and then really see if you can take some satisfaction, whether it's for one second, whether it's for three seconds. But while your awareness is there on its throne, quiet, clear, present, uncluttered by rumination, naked, take satisfaction in that. Learn to enjoy that. Be satisfied. And when you inadvertently, as if mesmerized, as if kidnapped, abducted, or carried away on a wild horse, you fall into rumination. Well, when you fall into rumination, you've lost your mind anyway. As soon as you find your mind again, then don't be upset about having been carried away by the horses of rumination. But as soon as you find your awareness, let your first response be satisfaction. Delight, relief, rejoicing. Ah, I've come home again. So whenever you've lost your mind, don't worry, you've lost your mind. But as soon as you've found it, just be happy and rest right there. And hold your throne. Hold your throne. Take satisfaction in that. So let that be our launching pad. When you can take real satisfaction, that can grow into enjoyment, that can grow into bliss, of letting your awareness rest in its own nature, then everything else will flow. If you can really take satisfaction in that, be content there. Everything will flow from that. Right? So just, if, whether it's one second, three seconds, but when you're there, you don't need to count the seconds. Just be happy you're home. Home again. The prodigal son, the prodigal daughter, who keeps wandering off, getting mesmerized, when you're mesmerized, you're memorized. Don't worry about it. As soon as you're back, take delight at being home again. And put on a seatbelt. <laughs> Find a comfortable position. No seatbelt for Natu. <laughs> He's feeling bold. I like that. <laughs> the rest of you seatbelts. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. 
Let the culmination of this process be letting your awareness come to rest, releasing all grasping, releasing all effort. Coming to rest in its own place, and having done so, let it hold its own ground. taking satisfaction in this rare and precious opportunity to explore your own inner resources, to experience genuine happiness. For a little while, enter into any of the methods of shamatha of your choice. But whatever your choice, take satisfaction in awareness holding its own ground, still, relaxed, luminous, and content.
Release all concepts of achieving or accomplishing anything. Release all concepts. And simply take, sa- take satisfaction in resting in this very ground, this very wellspring of sanity. Exceptional, extraordinary sanity. in its own good time. Allow your substrate consciousness to rise up and meet you, embrace you, and welcome you home.
as you even begin to gain some insight, experiential insight, into the nature of your own consciousness, your own internal resources, the potentials of consciousness, then there may arise a vision of loving-kindness, imagining the benefits, the bounty. If there were, as His Holiness envisions, a true renaissance of the world's contemplative traditions as they themselves rediscover their own riches, the richness of their own heritage, so much wisdom covered up. Imagine the benefits for all of humanity. And as you gain such experiential insight, you may see also not only the need, but the real possibility of there being a true revolution in the mind sciences, in which we overcome the ideological imbalances and blinders of the present and move in a spirit of radical empiricism, a great collaboration between scientists, contemplatives, and true lovers of wisdom, philosophers, As we arouse such a yearning and aspiration, this constitutes loving-kindness. But that renaissance and that mind revolution have not yet taken place. But already we can take satisfaction, take delight as we attend to people around the world who are sowing the seed. was such a great breakthrough for all of humanity. People of goodwill, of vision, of inspiration, of benevolence, within the fields of philosophy, of science, contemplatives around the world, and others as well, to be sure. Let your attention roam and take delight in all those who are applying themselves, devoting their lives, their hearts and minds to identifying the true causes of suffering, and to finding their true remedies, to discovering the true causes of genuine happiness. and applying themselves to it. Attend closely and with every out-breath, breathe out the light of gratitude, of satisfaction, of delight, of appreciation.
knock knock what are you asking me for that's for you to find out (laughs) (laughs) or we can ask the Buddha if you haven't figured that out yet. First turning of the wheel of Dharma, Four Noble Truths, the basic teachings. Who's not there is an autonomous, substantial, controlling ego who owns and runs your body and mind. Not there. If it is there, if that's who you are, show yourself. Show me that self. Show me that personal identity. If it's not to be found, then doesn't exist. First turning of Dharma, which is not there as this autonomous agent. Right? Second turning of the wheel of Dharma, where you are, right where you are. There is no sentient being, not really, not from your side. There's no sentient being, no Natu, no Chitra, no Patrice, no Gram. As a sentient being, you know, poor, deluded, screwed up sentient being, neurotic, mental afflictions. Find. Find that screwed up sentient being. Nowhere to be found. Where you are, right where you are. There is no sentient being to be found. If there's a sentient being there, it's one you've imagined and then reified. You remember the story about the person who wanders off in the desert with the prison kit? Remember? No? Oh, then I have to tell you another parable. <laughs> a person, for whatever reason, quite, quite strange, buys himself a kit to build a prison. You know, just a nice square prison, bars, basically a cage. He buys himself a kit, prison bars, and then he wanders off into the Sahara. As far as he can go, nobody ever sees him leave. And he wanders deep into the Sahara with no supplies, no water, no nothing. Person quite confused. And out there in the middle of the Sahara, then he gets industriously to work and puts together the whole assembly. All the bars firmly in place, bolted, locked, everything. A really solid cage, prison. And then he gets inside of it with the only key for the prison slams the door shut and then takes that key and hurls it as far as away as he can into the sand. He said, wow, it sucks to be locked in prison. (laughs) That's what we've done to ourselves. We've concocted a prison of our own identities. We've assembled it all ourselves. Threw away the one key and then say, help! Help! <laughs> That's my parable, by the way. That's got my trademark. Second turning the wheel of Dharma, where you are, there is no sentient being to be found. Not really. Nothing more than a non-lucid dream, and they don't really exist at all. Right? So you might want to just give that a rest. Unless you can actually reveal, if there's really a sentient being where you are, I'd like to meet that person. If you can find 
such a deluded sentient being who's really there. Third turning a will of Dharma. Where you are, there is the Buddha mind. There's Rikpa, there's primordial consciousness, there's Dharmakaya. Where you, the, where you are, there's Dharmakaya. First point. Second point. The ultimate nature of the Buddha's Dharmakaya, ultimate nature of your mind, are in no way different. Second point. Third point. All sentient beings belong to the same family, Buddha family. Sangikarik. Nobody is left outside of the family. Every single one. So as long as we're still holding tenaciously, and it takes so much effort to do it, like a claw, holding so tenaciously, I am a sentient being. I am a sentient being. Letting the soundtrack of rumination Keep on reinforcing that, sealing it, sealing it, sealing it. Then we are sentient being, as far as we are concerned. But when we see through that self-created prism and deconstruct it, then we see we actually do have a choice. What would you like as the basis of imputation for yourself? The body you were born with? mind that you're accustomed to having, arising independence upon karma and klesha. That's a choice. If you want to identify with that, you can. It's not you, but if that's what you'd like to adopt, just like adopting a child who, with, you, with whom you have no genetic relationship at all, it's simply another child on the planet, but you can adopt that child as yours. Likewise, this body, this mind, it's not yours. But if you want to adopt it, this little sack full of human sausage <laughs> and the mind like an anthill filled with snakes of mental afflictions and so forth. If you would like to adopt that and say, that's me, <laughs> then you can. Conventionally speaking, if you want to be a sentient being, you have that choice. But right where you are, there's also Buddha body, Buddha speech, Buddha mind, right where you are. So if you'd like to have that as your basis of designation, that's also a choice. That's your choice. So a very crucial point here. I think the stakes are very high. And that is where you are, there is no sentient being. Not really. Where this teacher is, there is no sentient being. There's no difference. It's like there's not a, a little bit less of no sentient being. There's just no sentient being here from this person's side. Anymore from Chucho's side. Jochen's side, that guy's side, Nicola. From the side of Nicola, there's no sentient being, not really. Not at all, in fact. Not inherently existent. From his own side, nowhere to be found. But there's Buddha mind there, there's Buddha mind here, Buddha mind everywhere. So if one has some insight into that, insight, intuition, if that's your worldview, then you have a foundation for one of the most transformative and profound, magnificent practices in all of Buddhism, 
And that is the Vajrayana approach to Guru Yoga, of viewing your Guru as a Buddha. If you have that insight into the emptiness of yourself as a sentient being and where your mind is, there is an indifferentiability between your mind and the Buddha mind. If you've realized that, you realize the symmetry here. No more Buddha mind on the side of the Buddha, of your guru, than there is on your side. It's not unevenly distributed. Right? And you are no more or less inherently a sentient being than your guru is. If you realize that, then to view your guru as a Buddha, very powerful. Very powerful. As many lamas say, that's the, really, that's the heart essence of the whole practice. Incredibly deep. Radically transformative. On the one hand. On the other hand, if you're still stuck in your own self-constructed cage, reifying yourself as a sentient being, and then you turn to some guru and think, you're perfect, you're, you're Buddha, I'm a schmuck, but help me, help me. You are a schmuck. You're a Vajrayana schmuck. This is, a, this is a ridiculous, stupid, blind faith, idolatrous parody of Vajrayana Guru Yuga. I'm sorry. But that's, you know, that's the turd covered in chocolate all over again. I am a Buddha, and I'm also you know, Californian. If you're still holding on to your ordinary reified sense of self, and then you adopt pure vision for yourself, you're an idiot. But if you've not realized the emptiness of yourself, don't have any realization of the emptiness of your guru, whoever that guru is, unless it actually happens to be someone like Buddha Shakyamuni. Simply by viewing somebody as a guru and then thinking, because he's my guru, therefore he's omniscient. And everything does it pure. And everything he says is infallibly, literally, absolutely correct even if he speaks broken English. That is now the Oxford's King's English. Because my infallible guru just spoke what other people call bad grammar. But now we know they are all speaking bad grammar because my guru is infallible. It, it frustrates me a little bit to see a practice so profound, so magnificent, turned into blind faith idolatry. That's what it is. That's Vajrayana Guru Yoga. You don't practice that Guru Yoga unless you're a Vajrayana practitioner, and you're not a Vajrayana practitioner unless you have some real insight into emptiness and intuitive embracing. It's part of your worldview of the ubiquitous nature of Dharmakaya. If you're just stuck in ordinary worldview, I'm an ordinary schmuck, but at least my guru is omniscient. Well, maybe you're lucky, or maybe you're just a schmuck. But you are a self-constructed schmuck. So you can stop at will, you know. And then start from scratch. First turning with Dharma, Guru Yoga. How do you view your Guru? If the Guru is authentic, and you better check, because there's a lot of them who are not. They think they are, but they don't know what they're talking about. So first you really, really check. How, how many times have we heard that? Before you view a Guru, a, a certain person, man or woman, as your teacher, how long do you investigate? They often say 10 years, right? Make sure. In other words, you're looking for a solid basis of designation before you enter into that kind of guru yoga. You don't go any, mini, mini, mo. Oh gosh, you're charismatic. 
or I really like your smile. Come on. Right. So even for the Shravagayana level, for this first turning wheel dharma level, is there such a thing as guru here? Yes. Yeah. But first you check, is this person worthy to be regarded as a guru, a kalyanamitra, a true teacher, a, an authentic guide for this first turning wheel of dharma? Yes or no, because most people aren't. And a lot of people who think they are, aren't. Right. So you really must check. Authentic basis of designation or not. Right. And if upon careful investigation and seeing that there's good, good affinity, good personal connection, and you're definitely getting benefit from the teaching, then if you want to have good disciple relationship with such a first turning wheel of Dharma guru, then what's the authentic way of viewing the guru from that perspective? Since we've not even moved into Mahayana territory, realization of emptiness, let alone Dzogchen, Uttara Tantra, Buddha nature and all that. No, we're, st- we're coming into the, we're taking this as a path. What a novel idea. Right. So what's the authentic way of viewing the guru? There's an answer to that. Hardly ever taught. So weird. Such good teaching. Entry-level guru yoga. View your guru as an emissary of the Buddha. An emissary, an ambassador, representative. So if an ambassador of any great nation, that's 2,600 years of space. It's a lot of space. But there's a lineage. There's a transmission. There's a lineage. Teacher, student, teacher, student, teacher, all the way to the present. And if you find someone who bears that lineage, the genetic strain, so to speak, of authentic teachings of the Buddha, of the first turning of the wheel of Dharma, then whether this person is articulate, not articulate, has good sense of humor, no sense of humor, ugly, handsome, short, fat, skinny, strong, weak, whatever, if the person is authentic, living in accordance with the teaching, teaching with altruistic motivation, and teaching authentically, then you regard that person with all the respect all the reverence, as if this were an emissary sent by the Buddha. This is as close as you get for the time being. This is the Buddha's ambassador. So you show that kind of respect to such a teacher. Then you get much more benefit. Much more benefit. Because that's the whole point. Guru-disciple relationship is asymmetrical. It's all for the sake of the student. If the teacher needs students, the teacher should stop teaching and go into retreat. Right? Enjoy your day. Or else. <laughs> and the or else is you won't enjoy your day. 